Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. So what I'd like to do today is to talk about how you go about developing a treatment. And I'm talking about the early stages in the development process. And I'm going to illustrate that with some work that's going on in the group at the moment. So in many diseases, cells which are in the disease state have profound differences from those in the normal state. And we can exploit these differences in order to develop the treatment. And so I'm going to be talking about a particular protein which is increasing in a particular disease. And the disease that I'm interested in is prostate cancer, which you might know is the third most common cancer and the most common male-specific form of cancer in the UK. So there are many new cases every single year. A lot of what I'm going to say um, applies to lots of different diseases, though. So a lot of it is quite um, generic in output. OK, so before I start the actual talk about what we're actually doing in the lab, I wanted to talk about cancer research at Bath, which is a network that we have of cancer researchers. And so the mission of this network is to promote excellence in any aspect of cancer research. And we do this in a number of different ways. So first of all, every six months, we have a symposia. And what happens is we have experts in the field who turn up and they tell us all about the latest advances in cancer. Now, that's really important because we all work in our specialist research fields but a lot, lots of advances are made by talking to people who have different expertise. Similarly, we have a lot of scientists who are at the beginnings of their career, so they're either reading a PhD degree or they've recently finished a PhD degree or something similar, and it's important for them to be able to get up and to talk about the results that they've got in their experiments. And so here we have a couple of our former postgraduate students who, at the time this was taken, they were reading for their PhD. And they're at one of these symposia where they're presenting their results as a poster. Equally important is networking. Okay, so a lot of the good ideas that, that we get come from talking to people with different expertise. And this enables us to establish collaborations and move in different directions. So this is really important. And finally, we have some amount of charitable fundraising. So these are three of my colleagues. This particular photograph was taken a couple of years ago, and they're all growing moustaches for the Movember appeal which funds prostate cancer research. OK, so the university does have charitable status, so, um, and cancer research at Bath is part of the university. So if you're running the Bath Half Marathon or doing other fundraising and you want to do it for can cancer research, please think about looking at what we do. 
Okay, so that's kind of the shameless plug. <laughs> All right, so into the actual subject. All right, so I first started getting interested in this particular fat um, quite a few years ago now, in fact, in the middle of the 90s. And this fat is um, produced from the green stuff in plants, chlorophyll. And what happens is you have animals, whoops, such as cattle, and they eat the grass. And this breaks down the chlorophyll and produces this fatty acid. And so it ends up in the human food in things like milk and other dairy products and also things like meat, which is derived from the animals which are doing it. And so your average daily intake will be around about 0.1 grams. That's kind of typical in, the in a typical Western diet. And what we notice about this fat is that it's got these branch points, these methyl groups, which are located around the molecule. And this means that we're not able to break down the fat in the same way that we process most fats. We have to use a special pathway. And so that's what I'm going to talk about next. So the protein we're interested in is involved in breaking down this fat. So we've got our fat, and the first thing that we do is we make it into a derivative. So this derivative is very long and complicated. It has a very complicated chemical structure, but we just call it CoA for convenience. And what this does is it allows the proteins in the cell to grab hold of the fat and to process it. So that's its function. Notice that we've got this methyl group, this branch point, which is in the forwards position. And we need to, first of all, do a preliminary bit of modification. So using several different steps, we basically modify this protein. Uh, modify this fat. And what we're doing is we're essentially taking out this carbon atom here so that it means that the carbon which is now bearing the methyl group and the carbon which is bearing this bit here are now next to each other. Now, the problem is that when we have this methyl group in the forwards position, we can't proceed any further. The other proteins in the cell cannot process them. So the protein that we're particularly interested in, which is called AMACR, it has a very long technical chemical name, but AMACR, um, what it does is it flips this methyl group, this branch point, from the front to the back. And this allows the fat to be broken down further. So you can think about AMACR as kind of a gatekeeper. It allows things to go into the next set of um, processes. Now in the next, um, also AMACR is involved in the activation of ibuprofen and several other drugs. So when you go to Boots or the pharmacy, what you will find is that the ibuprofen that you buy will be in two, a mixture of forms. So you're going to have methyl group forwards and methyl group back. Now, the methyl group forwards version 
is it doesn't work. The methyl group back version has the nice anti-inflammatory and pain-killing properties. But what happens in the cell is that when you give somebody the methyl group forwards version is you convert it into the same derivative as before, ADD-CoA, and then AMACR, there we go, AMACR then flips the methyl group into the opposite position. So we now have it in the backwards position. And we can then take off this derivative so we end up with the drug. So what we're doing here is we're taking our inactive drug and turning it into an active drug. And this is referred to as pharmacological activation. In other words, we're switching everything on. So that's what AMACR does in normal cells. Okay, so in 2002, uh, we had some reports that in cancer cells, particularly prostate cancer cells, but some others as well, we end up having a lot more AMACR protein. And so what this slide shows is a section of prostate cancer tissue. And what we can see, there we go, is that we have this bit, which when we've treated it with a staining system, we end up getting lots of brown stain, uh, which is AMACR protein. And if you blow up the magnification, what you can see is that we're getting staining at particular parts of the cell. If we look in the normal tissue, so this is in the same sample, what we can see is that we have very little brown stuff. So there's much less AMACR present in the, in the non-cancerous cell. So this is a difference between the cancer cell and the normal cell. And so one thing that has been done quite extensively is you can stain your tissue for this protein and this will be able to tell you whether you've got cancerous cells or normal cells. This contrasts with some of the other stains which are used where, so this is the same um, tissue sample and it's stained for a different marker where what we can see here is that the cancerous tissue stains and so does the non-cancerous tissue. So what this means is that it's much more difficult to tell whether you've got cancerous um, tissue or not. Okay, so that's quite useful. It gives us a way of diagnosing whether the patient has cancer. But several years ago, we ended up with somebody else doing an experiment where they showed that if you took a cancer cell and you reduce the amount of protein which was present, the AMACR protein, the cancer cell stopped growing um, as aggressively and started to behave more like a normal cell. So that was one of the clues that um, manipulating this system would give us a way of treating prostate cancer. All right, so there are several different ways in which we might be able to manipulate the AMACR. So what we're trying to do is to find a small chemical which is going to sit in the AMACR protein and is going to block it from working. And so this is 
the reaction that the AMHR does. It's swapping the position of these methyl groups. And there are several different approaches to finding that, uh, that drug which is going to be turned into a treatment. So the first one is we can use what's called structure-based design. So if we have a picture of the protein, um, and this is done at, at an atomic level, so we can see all the different atoms, or most of the different atoms, which are all connected together, what we can do is use a computer to search for molecules, small molecules, that are going to sit in the protein and stop the normal things from binding. Now, the problem with doing it in this particular case is that there is no actual structure for human or a mammalian AMACR. And the picture that I've shown you is for a closely related bacterial protein. So that just makes it much more difficult in order to, um, to identify the correct drug. A second option is to do what we call high-throughput screening. And so in this, what we do is we take some protein which works, we take something which is converted into something else, so that's referred to as a substrate. And ideally, we want that substrate, when it's acted on by the protein, to produce a colour or some other readily detectable system. And we can see here that what we've got is a place where we've got 96 different experiments being run at the same time. And so, typically when you do this in industry, you might start off with several million compounds. Um, and there are various sort of libraries of drugs, which we can, or libraries of potential drugs, which we can search through. So I'm going to talk about the work that we've done using this particular approach later on in my talk. A variation on this is combinatorial chemistry. So it works in much the same way. The difference is that the library, the thing that we're trying to find out whether, which members work, will block the protein, is produced in a slightly different way. So what you do is you take a whole series of small chemical fragments and you stick them together in several different ways. And by doing this, you end up producing a whole library, hopefully several thousand to several tens of thousands of new compounds. And we can screen through these using, whoops, using the same approach as in high throughput screening to see whether any of them will block the action of the protein. The last one, or the last approach, is what's called rational design. And this is the, one, the, the approach which has been taken by most of the groups that have worked in this area up to now. And so what you do is you take your knowledge of the structure of the protein, you take your knowledge about how the protein works, and you try to design something which is going to sit into the, in the protein and stop it from working. Okay. I mean, this is quite difficult, um, and in fact... There's only been about 10 or so drugs which have been reported since AMACR was um, identified as a potential treatment method in 2002. And I'll explain why that is in a moment. 
regardless of which particular method we go for, we have to use chemistry. So we're using chemistry both to make um, the compounds that the protein works on and also to make the potential drugs. So we want to make these and then test them in order to see whether they work as predicted. All right, so what I'm going to talk about now is the methods that we've used in order to develop um, a system where we can tell whether the drugs work or not. And we've actually been working on this for about eight years, so a very long time. And the first thing that we need to do is to make protein. So we're using human protein, but it's difficult to get it from human sources. So what we're actually doing is we've pr produced a method where we're making the protein in bacteria. So we take the DNA that codes for our human protein, AMACR, and we put it into another bit of DNA which allows the protein to be produced in bacteria. And then you take this fusion and transform it into the bacteria. You can then grow up the bacteria in quite a large scale. So in this case, around about a litre or so. And if we treat the bacteria in the correct way, what will happen is we'll end up making the human protein that we want. And then eventually, we'll end up taking all those bacterial cells and we can use those in order to extract and purify the protein. So the first stage is that we take our cells and we put them into a, into a solution. And we use this thing here in order to break open the cells. And what that is going to do is it produces a crude extract. So that's a mixture of the protein that we want and all the other contaminating proteins in AMACR that we want to get rid of. We can then purify away all the junk proteins, the things we don't want, using a technique called affinity chromatography. So we've engineered our protein such that it has a little bit of extra sequence. And what that does is it means that the protein, the AMACR protein, will stick to the blue stuff in this column. So when we load our mixture, what happens is all the junk protein will um, wash straight through and the protein that we want stays on the column. And we can then end up changing the solution so we then get the protein we want off the column. And we'll end up with a number of samples and we can use this technique which is called SDS page in order to check whether we've got the protein um, in, a, in a particular sample or not. There we go. Um, and this is a typical sort of gel that we get from doing STS page, what we can see here, these are a number of standard proteins and so they have different sizes and so we're running them down from the top of the gel and the large proteins will only move a short distance and the small proteins will move a big distance. So we're able to separate our proteins based on size. This bit here is the crude extract. And although it's not very easy to see, what, what you can tell from this is that we've got our protein, but we've also got quite a bit of junk left. This is the stuff 
which just washed through the column. And then this bit here is what's stuck to the column. And we've now taken it off the column, so we've separated it from the rest. So what we can see is that we've mostly got rid of all the contaminating proteins we don't want. I'm afraid, well, this is the only sort of bit, real bit of chemistry that I'm going to talk about. Um, and I'm not going to go through this in too much detail, but if anybody really, what, really is interested in the finer points, then I can talk to them about this after the lecture. Um, but we are using chemistry a lot in order to make the various sort of materials that we need. And so I just want to give you kind of an overview of how we go about doing that. So what we, what we did in this particular case, this is one of the particular chemicals that we're going to make, is we took an activated form of a fat and we coupled it onto an additional group, this bit here. And we're then going to put um, our branch point onto this carbon. And when we do this reaction, what this means is that the branch point will go in in one particular orientation. So in this case, so that it's facing forward. And that is because this bit clashes with this bit at the back. So this bit at the back will stop the branch point from approaching from the other side. We can then take off our extra bit, this bit here, and then finally we can end up using um, various techniques in order to convert this into the actual derivative which is being used by the protein. So we're using chemistry in order to specifically make the particular thing that we want. And so this is the inside of a fairly typical organic chemistry lab. So this is the lab of one of my colleagues. There we go. All right, so we've got the protein. We've got the, um, the compound that we need in order to measure whether AMACR is working or not. How are we going to go about doing it? Well, we've worked on several different methods. And this one was the first one. So we started wor working on this in around about 2007. And the first method we came up with was we took this compound that we made in the previous slide and we incubated it in a tube with our protein, some buffer, so that controls the pH, and heavy water. And in the presence of active protein, things that work, functional, what happens is we swap this hydrogen atom here for a heavy hydrogen atom which is in the heavy water. And we can use a, a technique called NMR in order to tell the difference between these two molecules. So this is a typical NMR machine. It's a very expensive and sophisticated bit of, of kit. But essentially what we have is a big magnet and then we put the sample into the magnet. And then we do a little bit of physics and we use that in order to produce a picture. So this is a fairly typical sort of picture and it's very complicated. But what, we're going, what we have to look at is this peak here. So notice that this peak is a double peak. 
And this is the methyl, the branch point, before AMACR has processed it. If we do a similar um, analysis after AMACR has processed the compound, what we will see is that we end up with a very similar picture, but this, single, this double peak has now turned into a single peak. So we're able to tell the difference between the before and after states. So that's very nice. We can tell whether the protein is working, but there are two big problems. The first is that it takes about 30 to 60 minutes to produce each one of these pictures, which is obviously a big problem if we want to do several thousand, um, which we do. And the second problem is that these two peaks appear in the same place. And that means that it's quite difficult to tell how far this conversion has, has um, happened. So what we really want to know is to find out what is the ratio of this to this. There we go. So we started off thinking about whether we could do other, a different type of reaction. And this was investigated by Max, who was my PhD student at the time. He's now working with me for having followed his PhD. And some of the later work was done by Gwat, who is currently finishing writing her PhD. And so what we did was we made this rather similar compound. And it looks quite like the previous one. The main difference is that we have a fluorine atom, which is in this position here. So the rest of the compound is basically exactly the same. And what we thought was going to happen was we were going to get a flipping of this methyl group. That didn't actually happen. What actually happened when we treated it with, with our protein was that we ended up taking off this hydrogen atom and we ended up losing the fluorine. And so what we ended up with was hydrogen fluoride and this second derivative where we've got a double bond which has been produced. So we can use this to measure the activity. Again, we're using NMR, we're making a picture. And what we can see, so in this case, this is just the compound and the, and the protein. And if we look at this picture, it's fairly complicated, but we can see that we've got a double peak, and this is this methyl group here. And then we have a large single peak, which is this bit here. So what's good is that these two peaks do not appear in the same place. And that makes it much easier in order to, um, to quantify how far the reaction has gone. We can also take some known drugs which stop AMHR from working and ask the question, does this block the action of the protein? And can we observe this using this technique? Well, the answer is yes, we can. Um, we took this particular compound, which is structurally very similar to the substrate. And when you add this, what we notice is that we have a much bigger double peak. So that's the thing that we're starting with and a much smaller product peak, the thing that we end up with. So what this tells us is that when we have an effective um, blocking agent, 
we can tell whether, um, whether it's working or not using NMR. We're now, we're still stuck in terms of going through and processing a large number of samples. And we spent something more than a year trying to adapt this technique um, so that we could have a more convenient method to detect whether we were getting products. These things here. That didn't ultimately didn't work. So we, we moved on to try to do the same thing using a slightly different way. And so just before Christmas, um, Max, who was just between finishing his PhD and starting his next position, he started working on this new uh, method. And what we were thinking about was, well, can we think of something that will leave from the substrate, the thing that's going to be processed, which will be colourless when, when it's bound in the beginning compound, and is going to give us a colour or a fluorescent signal in the compound uh, once it leaves. And so we had a good think and a look around the literature about what to use. And we came up with this compound, 2,4-dinitrophenol. And so this compound is colourless when it's coupled into the substrate, but yellow when, it, when it's released. And so three days before Christmas in 2014, I got an email which showed a picture. And the sample where we'd got the active AMACR was yellow. And the sample uh, where we didn't have any AMACR was colourless. And further investigation showed that when we looked at what was in there, we had this derivative where we've got this double bond. And we've got the expected yellow product. Now, that might not seem very significant. <laughs> but what's important about this is that now it means for the first time, we can actually quantify how good the drugs are that are blocking AMACR. Nobody's ever been able to do that before until just over six months ago. And the second thing is that it means that we're able to process lots and lots of samples all at the same time. So using the previous NMR assays, we've probably managed to do, if we're lucky, five samples in three hours. We're now at the point where we can do more than 700 samples in three hours. So that gives you an idea of how much throughput we've increased things by. We did a test where we took a known drug. So this thing has been reported by somebody else in the literature, and it blocks um, the activity of the protein. And so when we do this experiment, there we go. I have to stand in exactly the right bit of the room, otherwise the slide won't, won't advance. Um, it's a bit hard to see, but we've got, these are our test samples, and these are some control samples. And when we have lots of drug, lots of the purple stuff, we don't get very much yellow. When we don't have much drug, we get lots of yellow. So what we're able to do is to test the drug at several different concentrations. 
so we can have, have an, an estimate of how well it works. And so we can use this in order to me measure how, f how much function the AMHR protein has in these samples. And so we end up producing a graph like this. And so what this basically shows is this is how much functional AMACR we have measured in a particular way. And this is essentially how much inhibitor is present in the sample. And what we can see is when we have very little, we get lots of functional AMACR. And when we have very, very large amounts of inhibitor drug, we get very little functional AMACR. And we can use this to make a rough estimate of how good the drug is. So what we do is we look at these two extremes, so pretty much full activity and no activity, and we take the halfway point, so which it would be somewhere here, and what we do is we look at the concentration of the drug which gives us that half response, and this is called an IC50. And so we can use this to numerically compare whether one drug is working better than the other. All right, so for about the next three months, so this was coming up to about May of this year, what we started doing was testing the known drugs that had already been reported in the literature. And we also threw a few other things into the, um, into the system that we had knocking around from other bits of work that we'd been doing. And so what we really wanted to know is whether we could tell the difference between different effective levels of drug. And we ended up looking at three different classes, essentially. There we go. So the first was we had a whole series of ibuprofen derivatives. So we've, in common, we've got the CoA bit, we've got this methyl group, this branch group, and then we've got something which has a variable bit here. And what we can see, so we're measuring the IC50, so low numbers mean that it's a very good drug. High numbers mean it's not a very good drug. And what we can see is that, roughly speaking, all of these different, different compounds all behave about to the same level of effectiveness. Some are a little bit more effective and some a bit less, but they're all roughly the same. We also had a look at several different, different fatty acids. So this is the one that I was talking about when we looked at the previous assay where we had the fluorine in the substrate. And what we can see here is that we've got an IC50 value of less than one nanomolar. So that compares to about 300 to 500 nanomolar. So in other words, this is somewhere between 300 and 1,000 times more effective than these drugs. So it's a very good inhibitor. We also had a look at some differences between the various structures. So what we want to know is which bits of the structure are important for effective, effective action. So, for example, we compared these two compounds. The only difference is that in one case, we've got this methyl group in the forward position, and in this case, we've got a hydrogen atom. But what we can see is that 
making that tiny little change has made a difference of about fourfold in the effectiveness. And then we also had a look at some of these non-specific protein modifying agents. And what we found was that they were roughly speaking about the same level of effectiveness as the other compounds. Now that's sort of good. We've proven the assay can work. But there's two big problems with taking this stuff forwards. Um, the first is that compounds with CoAs are not very good drugs. And there are several reasons for this. The first is that CoAs tend to fall apart quite easily. The second is that they're very difficult to transport around the body. So if you give them to somebody, they're just not, not going to go anywhere. And they're very difficult to get into cells. So the way in which most people um, have tried is, is this idea where you take the acid and then you distribute that around the body. And then when it gets taken up into the, into the cell, you make that derivative. Now, that works moderately well, but it's a bit hit and miss. And the other problem is that, for example, this one here, if you take this CoA derivative off, what's going to happen is that the resulting acid is just going to fall apart. It won't, won't be stable. These compounds here are normally found within cells, so they're going to be degraded pretty quickly. So they're of no value at all in terms of drugs, but they do tell us something useful in terms of the system that we're working on. These things are very non-specific, so they're going to modify lots of different proteins. And so the problem with that is that you can end up with lots of to toxic side effects, especially if you end up taking them over a long period of time and you're taking these things every day. So that's really not good. Okay, so high throughput screening. I'm, I was really mean, actually. Um, so, um, what, we, what we started off with over the summer was we got some libraries of drug-like compounds. So these things have never been um, investigated before. And I don't know what the structures are. They were given to us by MRC technology. And they'll tell us what the, what the structures are once we find out once we characterise the effective drugs. And this work that I'm going to talk about was done in eight weeks by an undergraduate student, Joanna Petrova, who's a pharmacy student in her fourth year now at the University of Bath, and Hannah Mattens, who is a sixth form college student. So, and we're doing really cutting-edge research. And what they did over these eight weeks was we took this library and we took a small sample of the drug, we put it into a plate so we could do up to 96 samples all at the same time, and we added protein. And after about 10 minutes, we then added our detecting agent, the thing that's going to produce the yellow colour, and looked to see whether we got a yellow colour or not. And this was one of the early experiments that we did. And what you can see is, so this is a real bit of data, um, what you can see is we're monitoring at two different colours. And this is time, and this is your colour. And so in most of the wells, what we're seeing is that we're getting an increase in colour until we reach a maximum 
over, a, over the period of a few minutes. If you look at these two here, what these things have here is that we're getting no increase in colour. So the function of AMACR has been completely blocked. So the only difference between these wells and these wells is that we have a different drug molecule in there. There we go. So what we then did was we then went back and we looked at each of these drug molecules. So this is the real bit of data that goes with it. And we looked at the two different colours and we compared it to a reaction where we had no drug presence, so we're expecting to get lots of colour, and a reaction where we had no protein presence, so we're expecting to get no colour. And this is what happens where you have just protein and um, colour, colouring agent. This is what happens where you have no protein, so you get no increase in colour at all. And this is what happens when you stick the drug in with the protein. So what we can see is that despite the fact that we've got active protein, we've blocked, completely blocked the action of that protein. So we have an effective drug. Now, we only got a tiny amount of these drugs, um, but we went through and we did a, a little bit of testing to see whether we have potency. Um, and we did this by looking at the activity versus the amount of drug analysis that I described of few minutes ago. And what we can see is that at, at um, low amounts of drug we get lots of activity and high amounts of drug we get very little activity. And so we can make an estimate of what the potency of the drug is. So you can see that this one, which is a completely new compound, is about the same level as potency of the thing that we had before. So we've, we've discovered something which is at least as good as the known compounds. We also had a look at whether some of these drugs were sticky or not. So what we wanted to know was um, whether the drug binds to the protein and then modifies it so the drug won't come off again, or whether the it's reversible so that if you take away the drug, you then get back function of the protein. And generally speaking, that's a good thing because drugs which end up modifying the protein and not coming off tend to cause problems later on. And so what we can see here is that this is, what, this is our control where we've just got protein and colouring reagent. This is what happens where you have no protein. This is what happens when you have drug and your active protein. So you can see that we're getting a small increase in activity. Where we take the drug away, what we can see is that we're getting complete restoration of our activity. So what this means is that the drug is binding to the protein and then when we remove it, it's able to come off again. So using this method, this, uh, where we're putting stuff into these plates. In the eight weeks, we screened 7,680 compounds. Yeah, and in one day, we screened 768 compounds. So, you know, that compares to about five compounds in three hours. Um, and as a result, 
we've discovered several new, completely unknown classes of drug. So that's basically where we're at now. What are we going to do next? Well, there are several things. So the first is, um, I have a number of students who are screening for the library. So we're looking for some different chemical classes of compound. The second thing that we're going to do is to go back to all these things that we've identified from the work over the summer, and we're going to do this potency analysis. So looking at how, um, how active the protein is versus the amount of drug which is present. And so that should tell us quite a lot of useful information. And then hopefully what will happen is the MRC will give us a whole series of similar compounds to the ones which are working, and we're going to go back and test these as well. And there are a few other different analyses that we need to do. And hopefully what, the, what, what this will tell us is what are the important features in terms of the chemical structure in order to get a really effective drug. And ideally what we would like to do is to combine these features which are most effective so that we end up with something which is going to have all the best bits. So that's good because it means we can use a very small amount and then that will avoid a lot of the side effects that you tend to get. Once we've identified things which look promising, we're then going to test them in cancer cells. So in this, um, this particular setup, what we have are cancer cells which are growing. And when you have lots of growth, you end up with lots of dark colour. Where you don't have much growth, you have much lighter colour. And so what we want to know is whether the drug can get into the cancer cell and whether it works in the way in which we're predicting it to. In other words, will it stop that cancer cell from growing? Because that's what we're expecting. And then hopefully we will end up with a few compounds that we can really start to move forwards with. Um, and so hopefully we will end up working with the MRC technology in order to take this from something which is very interesting but to move forward so we actually start to really develop a clinical treatment for prostate cancer and some of the other cancers in which AMACR is increased. Okay, so that's really everything that we, we've done up to now. So I've actually told you about the results that, that we've got up to two days ago. Okay, so this is really cutting-edge re research. Um, I've had lots and lots of people who've passed through the labs and I'm really grateful to these people because they've done a lot of hard work and they've done a really good job. And you can see that we've got groups going back for a long time and this is just a selection and I haven't been able to talk about the work which all of these people have done. But I'm really grateful um, and in a lot of cases this work has been done by undergraduate students who have worked over the summer or have done projects with me in their final year, and sixth form college students. Um, so, for example, this student here, um, her name is Georgina Steele. She um, came to the lab five years ago when she was a sixth form college student. She's now reading dentistry at Liverpool University. And we were finishing off a bit of work, and so we published it. We put her on the paper, 
And so she ended up with a publication in Chemical Communications, which is a very good quality chemistry journal, before she sat her A-levels. Um, we have several others. So this was my project group several years ago. Um, we ended up with a publication there as well. Um, obviously, we've got Max and Quat. They've really been central to the team. Um, and they've done a lot of the experiments, which have really been instrumental in driving the thing forward. Um, I'm also very privi privileged to work with some very good and excellent academic colleagues. Um, so Mike Threadgill, Professor Mike Threadgill, has been a long-term collaborator for a long, long time. Uh, and Tim Woodman, he's also been a, lo a long-term collaborator and helped supervise these projects. And obviously, this was from the summer. So this is uh, Joanna and Hannah, who did the high-throughput screening work, which I talked about. Um, I just wanted to show you all the people that have contributed to this, co uh, to this um, project. There are lots and lots and lots of them. I wasn't able to talk about all their work, which was a great pity. But if I did that, we'd be here for about four hours. Um, and that's far too much. We also need to acknowledge the people that give us money to do this research. So um, we've had the sixth framework. So this is the European Union. Cancer Research UK, they funded some of the early work that I was talking about. Cancer Research at Bath gave us some money as well. Um, Prostate Cancer UK have been funding this project for about five years. And so they're one of the major contributors. And MRC Technology. Um, they gave us the library. So they've basically given us this free of charge, providing that we work with them when we exploit these discoveries. Nuffield Foundation has given money to several students to come and work in the lab, and the Biochemical Society funded Joanna's studentship this summer. We've also had a number of um, visiting students or other workers, so they come from different universities, so the HEC is in Pakistan. We've had a student who came from Sapienza University in Rome and several students who have come from Shandong University in China. Okay, so um, I've certainly enormously benefited from working with these very ta talented people and I hope they've got lots of benefits from the experience that they've had from working in the lab. Um, and then finally, I have to show the gratuitous picture as well. Um, so I don't just spend all my life in the lab, um, though that, that would be nice in some ways. Um, but I do do other, other things. And this always freaks my undergraduates out when they see this picture. Um, here we go. Um, and the thing is, um, this is my instructor, Master Oddborn. He's six foot seven and three times heavyweight world, world taekwondo champion. Um, so obviously any of the undergraduate students that gave me, give me bad feedback on my teaching, obviously I call Master Oddborn and he comes and sorts them out. Um, okay, um, thank you for your attention and I'd be very happy to try and answer any questions you might have. I'll take the picture off now because I don't want to distract everybody.